It's Sunday, August 4th. I'm Mike Lequiteur, and you're listening to The West Block. Climate change is affecting the North more quickly than the rest of Canada. The government has promised to protect massive parts of the Arctic Sea and promised millions in infrastructure. Is it enough? We'll talk to the senator for Nunavut. Then, dates for the debates are set, parties are filling their war chests, and politicians are testing their lines. We'll unpack the politics as the election campaign looms. And I hit the court with NDP MP Don Davies. We talk drop shots and the drop of the writ in this week's edition of Hill Hobbies. Canada's north is warming three times faster than the rest of the world. This summer has brought record temperatures and even wildfires to the global Arctic. In Canada, melting ice is opening new shipping lanes. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in Nunavut last week to unveil a vast marine protected area and millions of dollars to ensure local Inuit communities benefit from the new measures. Northern leaders welcomed the new changes. This is a new way of seeing conservation, not only in Canada but globally. We're proud Canadians, but we don't want to be forgotten. And this is one great example of how things are bringing us back in. And we need to ensure responsible development and long-term economic potential for the high Arctic. And for more on climate change and the future of Canada's north, I'm joined by Senator for Nunavut, Dennis Patterson. Senator, thanks for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. So you've represented the north for decades. How have you seen the climate change during your lifetime? You know, where I live in uh, Iqaluit on Baffin Island, uh, Inuit in particular use the sea ice for travel, and so do I to get to my cabin. Uh, I've used the, been out on the sea ice and it's been perfectly safe into July uh, in years past. This year in April, it was starting to get dangerous. The ice was melting from underneath with warm currents. It's been very difficult for travel and some hunters have been lost because of this rapid change in warming. Yeah, and it's something that I think the locals are seeing a lot as well, but also you, you as a special role here, you were the chair of the Senate's special committee on the Arctic. You released a wide-ranging report called Northern Lights, a wake-up call for the future of Canada. Now, first, give me your, initial me your take on the initial measures that the government announced just this week. Do they adequately respond to that wake-up call that you signaled in that report? Well, it is welcome that there were announcements about uh, involving the Inuit in particular in um, protecting and monitoring a new uh, marine conservation area. That's certainly very welcome. Uh, when the Oceans Protection Act was uh, passed, the Oceans Act was recently passed in the Senate, I did call for amendments which would guarantee the uh, full involvement of northern governments in developing these new conservation and protected areas. Unfortunately, the amendments were watered down. I think in the long run, what we want to see is that the uh, northern people and their elected governments will be involved in management of the offshore the same way as happens in Atlantic Canada. So this is a step in that direction, but there's a lot further to go. 
Yeah, and mentioning that in your report, I'll just quote from it here, you said that Arctic policy in the past has been developed by well-intentioned but ignorant southern bureaucrats. How has that been felt in the Arctic, uh, and, and what has that really hindered in really um, going forward for the, the Inuit people? Well, I think we need to recognize that the Arctic is an increasingly important strategic uh, interest for Canada. We have the longest coastline, and uh, it covers about almost half of Canada from east to west. What we need in Arctic policy is to more fully involve northern governments and also to have Canada invest in the basic infrastructure that's needed. Right now there's only one port on the whole Northwest Passage and another one being built some distance away in Iqaluit as a commitment from the previous government. We uh, rely on satellite communication with no fiber optics and no backup. We have uh, total reliance in Nunavut on diesel power with no alternate energy sources or, or backup. So there's a need for Canada to invest in the Arctic just as we're busy investing in shorting, shortening commuter times in southern Canada. Now this government last week mentioned that they would be investing in infrastructure for the people of the high Arctic. How far will that go in addition to the housing strategy that they've announced, knowing that climate change is affecting the housing so greatly? I mean, how much does that actually change the equation or does it make up for things? We have an acute housing shortage in Nunavut. Uh, it's been clearly identified as a shortfall of 3,000 units. So the announcement that was made uh, last week by the, by the Prime Minister to provide more money for this much needed housing, and unfortunately we depend 90% on the federal government for our revenue stream in Nunavut with our small population and fledgling economy. This is a great step forward. But we also in the report called for the development of northern building codes because we are dealing with climate change. So there's issues of mold and instability of foundations due to permafrost melting. And unfortunately, we're still waiting to see that northern uh, specific building code developed. And we're still struggling with actually declining contributions from Canada for the maintenance of our aging housing stocks. So again, uh, a step forward, but uh, more work needs to be done. And I know a lot of political parties will be looking to try and uh, court you know, votes up there. Just in the last minute that we have here, what do people of the North need to see from each political party as the campaign approaches? Do they know that these political parties are taking their concerns seriously? Well, I think uh, the issue of, of housing is a critical one. It affects all kinds of social issues that we're plagued with in Nunavut, from family violence to suicide to, unfortunately, a TB epidemic. So uh, housing is certainly an issue and also an attention to infrastructure. The final thing I'd like to say is that we don't want to be so dependent on Canada for our revenues for our government. So we need to also have a balanced approach, which would include not just environmental protection, but also uh, steps to develop our rich economy. We have rich resources in minerals, in uh, a fishery, and support 
for developing those resources will allow us to be more self-reliant and improve our 20 plus percent unemployment rate. Thank you very much for your time, Senator uh, Patterson. That's uh, unfortunate all the time we have today. Thank you very much. Now, if you've been listening to the party leaders recently, you probably think the election campaign is already in full swing. Here's just a quick sample. He is just not as advertised. The middle class can't afford another Doug Ford. And joining me right now to unpack all of the posturing are the Toronto Star's Ottawa Bureau Chief Susan Delacourt and Jordan Press from the Canadian Press. Thank you guys for joining us. The first thing that strikes me about those two clips is how negative it all is. I mean, Trudeau invoking Doug Ford. What happened to Trudeau's sunny ways, Susan? Oh, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think they were forgotten the minute Parliament started. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think this is just that's this is like the trailer for the election movie, and it's going to be um, maybe not Quentin Tarantino, but it's uh, it's it's going to be pretty ugly. Yeah, and and Jordan, I mean, do you think that we can get to any kind of level of discourse that will be positive here? Well, David Johnston, who's at the Debates Commission, is kind of hoping we get to that. And yeah. that's, I think, though, what you're seeing right now is you're just seeing them testing out these ideas. You're seeing how, how much can they get away with and what seems to be resonating the most, particularly during the summer when maybe not a lot of people are paying attention. They're just going to throw these things out there to see what might stick in, in the summer season, as I said, when people aren't really paying attention. Maybe that starts changing when the election actually starts, when the mm -hmm. campaign begins, and they start putting out policies that people are going to be paying attention to maybe closer to, the, maybe closer to that than to the rhetoric. Um it, it's, it's also possible it's based on research they're doing. We saw this week, this past week in Ottawa, hundreds of liberals uh, yeah. invaded the town for boot camp. And uh, I know they were shown a lot of data and they were exchanging the data they were receiving at the door. Mm -hmm. And I know the Ontario MPs, even some of the MPs in other places were talking about Ford as being the gift that keeps giving to them this summer. <laughs> um, they're getting a lot of Doug Ford stuff apparently at the door. So um, I would imagine that, that no, no politician, no political leader says things by accident. So whatever is being said this week has been it maybe is being market tested a bit right now, but right. it has been market tested. As and well. the Conservatives mm -hmm. doing some market testing also at the Foreign Affairs Committee, mm -hmm. where they were trying to bring up the whole issue of uh, talking to former diplomats and quashing what they were going to say. And then conveniently, it turns to SNC Lavalle and Mark Norman. Uh, so Jordan, I mean, clearly, you know, is, are, is their data saying that's going to resonate with voters at the ballot box? Well, it sounds like it probably does tell them that. The fact that they are talking about that. That they're trying to build that narrative to say it's not just one thing. Don't just look at SNC-Lavalin and think that's it. Mm -hmm. They really believe that if they can build that big narrative, if they can show that, then maybe those swing voters who are not quite sure they want to vote liberal again, maybe they'll suddenly start realizing, hey, you know what? Maybe the Conservatives have a point, and we need to start looking for another option at the ballot box. That they voted for sunny ways, and all of a sudden it's heavy-handed Justin Trudeau, who actually doesn't believe in all of this, Susan. Yeah, there were, Conservatives were doing very well. It's funny, there's almost an inside-outside Ottawa thing. Mm -hmm. Liberals do very well when the political debate is outside this city. 
Um, conservatives do very well when the debate is in this city. And they were doing very well over the winter with SNC-Lavalin. If I were the Liberals, um, and I was talking to some of them this week about this, what was worrying about the SNC-Lavalin story should be to them is that people were just making whatever story they wanted out of it. Right. So it wasn't based on people weren't intricately reading the details of it. They were... They were pulling the story they wanted out of right. it, and none of those stories were good for the Liberals. So I, I, I think they were all feeling good this week because, as, because they're outside Ottawa, but I also think that we're going to see the ghost of SNC-Lavalin all, all the way through the election. Yeah, and one of those things that I think a lot of people think is a really good indicator of what's going to happen in the election are polls. We're going to be inundated with them from now until October. But I think the better barometer is people putting their money where their mouth is and the fundraising data. And a lot of what has come out, I think, has been shocking. One of the, one of the things that came out for me for second quarter was how the NDP is actually behind the Greens, Jordan. Yeah, and that... And that says something about the interest of their base, because the fundraising numbers are important for the parties, but they are only one indicator. Like you said, you have polls, too, but they're only one indicator of just how well they're doing. It's an indicator of how well their base, how well their backers are actually mm -hmm. interested. How motivated are they right now? The intensity of that, motiv of, that, of that motivation they have to get out and help the parties win. If you have a party like the NDP that isn't getting a lot of, a lot of money coming in, it says something about where those, where their voters are and where their, their backers are and whether they actually want to go out and try to then help gain some more votes in the election. So I think it's, it's problematic for them. If you're the Liberals and the Conservatives, you're quite happy. And if you're the Greens, you are probably ecstatic at the moment that yeah. your fortunes are literally and figuratively rising. Yeah, and what kind of momentum does that build for me? Momentum is a really interesting word in here, too, because I went through and I actually compared, I think a lot of people did, the, the increase of all the parties from mm -hmm. March to from the first of quarter of uh, 2019 to the second one. The second one would have been the SNC Lavalin stuff. The Conservatives didn't increase all that much. They're mm -hmm. still a fundraising colossus. They're way, way yeah. ahead of everybody else, but they didn't increase all that much. Liberals did. There was some increase, which tells you that maybe the base is a bit worried, and uh, NDP did not. They a little tiny increase. The Greens nearly doubled the number of contributors and the money they were getting. So that's is it, it. Is it significant or is it a double, like, you know, from two to four? That's oh, like it's a... 700 and something thousand to uh, 1.4 million. Wow, that kind that's, of real traction. That that's, uh, yeah, it's, that tells you that in the midst of a very bad spring and winter, <clears throat> spring mostly for, for liberals, people were looking at the Greens. Yeah. Just before we go, I want to touch on one last thing. Foreign Affairs Minister Christian Freeland did finally meet with her Chinese counterpart. Um, do you think that this is a thawing that we're seeing now? It's a, it's a step. And the way that Christian Freeland described it when she was talking to reporters was this is a, a, just a, a positive step. It's not going to be, it's not the end of this. We, there's still a lot more to do. The fact that she had a face-to-face -face meeting mm -hmm. is something she had been rebuffed previously to get. And so she, the fact she had one is something to look at, but it's not to say this is the end of the story. But Susan, finally, positive news on this file. Anything is uh, that helps those two uh, Michaels get out. <laughs> it's just, uh, this is horrible. We're, yeah. we're getting close to a year. Um, I think it is, as Jordan said, it's going to be slow and steady and baby steps. Um, but I, I think still a lot of the work is being done behind the scenes. Yeah, okay. Thanks very much for that, guys. Susan Delacourt of the Toronto Star and Jordan Press of the Canadian Press. Appreciate it, guys.
The volley of words across the aisle of the House of Commons isn't the only back and forth NDP MP Don Davies enjoys. I recently caught up with Davies to hit some birdies for this week's edition of Hill Hobbies. It's always the easy one. Tips for a rookie. Hit it deep. Hit it to the backhand when you can. Get the guy moving around. And you're just saying that because you love the drop shot? No, I just gave away my entire game plan, actually. It's, we really are the conscience of the nation. <laughs> really. tell, tell me all the rules, maybe I'll win. See, we can't win government, but we can tell you exactly what you need to do. This is NDP badminton. You yeah. to look that way and hit that way. Oops. You shocked me by getting that one. Jeez, I could do this all day long. Yeah. I gotta ask you, why badminton? Well, uh, it goes back to high school. Many decades ago, I was on the high school badminton team. And uh, after, you know, a few years of getting away from it, uh, I picked it up uh, a few years ago to sort of as a hobby and to stay in shape. And, and I've always loved the game and, and it's a great way to stay in shape and have fun. How do you stay in shape and maintain that balance? How important is that on the hill to have that physical mental balance uh, because it's so stressful up there? The last uh, couple of years, I've, I've uh, really taken it more seriously. The job is stressful, it's long hours, it's hard to eat well. Um, and, and frankly, you need some outlet for the, for the, for the stress and long hours. So I think it's, uh, it's really important for, for people in this life to pay attention to their health. And I am the health critic for the NDP. So um, as I was getting to be a larger critic, I thought it's important <laughs> to, to <laughs> maybe practice uh, the, what I'm hearing and, and, and uh, get in shape. Do you have people to play with, though? I mean, partners to, to hit, hit around a couple of birdies? I haven't in Ottawa. I do in Vancouver. Okay. Um, and particularly with my wife. My wife and I uh, uh, play with another couple. Uh, um, a husband and wife team, so so we get out every Tuesday night in Vancouver when we can. And how and that's competitive how are you? Uh, <laughs> more competitive than my wife. <laughs> You've got more than a decade on the hill. Um, what do you think your biggest accomplishment as an MP has been th thus far? I've got a really really active um, constituency office where we have always put casework really really as our number one priority. I think we handle about 1,500 cases a year. And, and I got to tell you, Mike, that when when you see a family reunited, you know, uh, a, a husband walk in to, to see his wife or or children who are brought together, um, who have been separated for years in some cases, there are very few more satisfying political moments than that. And it's not the kind of thing that hits the news. It's not the kind of thing you read about. But we work hard on those cases, and, and that's what really makes a difference. And I think it's the most important part of an MP's job frankly, is, is serving your constituents. Uh, on the uh, macro scale, I, I would say, you know, I, I don't want to sound to have any hubris with this, but I, I think um, my party and I put, put Pharmacare on the national stage. You know, four years ago, nobody was talking about it. 
we campaigned on it last election but really didn't get much coverage and I moved the motion at the health committee and uh, really drove the issue forward uh, along with our leader Jagmeet Singh and I think now um, uh, we're poised, I think, to, to, to be on the verge of, of bringing the, the next big expansion to our universal health care system, and I think it's going to be a big issue in the fall election. Opposition parties could make the argument that their best ideas are being stolen by the government. I mean, the NDP championing pharmacare and now the Liberals introducing it uh, and taking it into the election. How much of a concern is that for the NDP that, especially when we saw in 2015, there were a number of ideas that uh, were fairly, let's say, had a, a tinge of orange to them that were in the in the Liberal platform. I guess I have mixed emotions on it. I mean, sometimes I think the NDP is the idea factory for the Liberal Party, you know. Um, so uh, on the one hand, I, I guess there's a little bit of um, political resentment when, when a party who ignores a lot of these issues seems to take our issues at election time for political opportunistic reasons. On the other hand, you know, um, I think uh, imitation is the best form of flattery and if we propose the idea but other politicians and parties end up uh, being uh, responsible for implementing them and it's for the good of Canadians and at the end of the day I think it's, it's just a good thing. Do you not worry though that that could mean less votes for the NDP. I think that Canadians trust the NDP as the as the original and and most sincere and committed party for health care and I think they know that without a lot of NDP MPs in Parliament uh, next Parliament there's a very good chance that the Liberals won't bring in in Pharmacare. They promised it in 1997 22 years ago and they've had 13 years of government to bring it in and they never have. If you don't have a strong group of NDP MPs in Parliament it makes it really easy for parties like the Liberals to promise one thing during a campaign and then conveniently forget that pledge and, and, and not bring it in once they're elected. So, so I think Canadians understand that. But being weeks away from the election, so many of the stalwarts of the party are not running anymore. How concerned are you about the party's fortunes going forward, especially when you consider that Jagmeet Singh has not had the traction that everybody thought he would when he was first elected the leader of the party? Well, you know, they said the same thing in 2011. We started that campaign at 18%. We finished uh, with 103 seats and at 31%. They wrote off Jack Layton in 2004 and 2006. I think Jagmeet's going to be a hell of a campaigner. You know, he loves people. I've seen him in action, Mike, and when he's uh, out in a crowd of people, he's dynamic. People like him. He's sincere. I think he reflects the face of Canada. And I think we're going to have a very strong campaign, and I'm very positive and optimistic about um, about our campaigning and, and what the final results will be. Don, really appreciate that. That was a lot of fun. Oh, Mike, that, that was great. Uh, but the thing about badminton is conditioning. Hit the line. Harder, harder, harder. Boy, keep going, dig, Mike, dig, 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 dig. Had a boy, Mike. Had a boy. Yes, that's not bad. We'll get you. We'll get you in shape. Yeah. That's the West Block for this week. Mercedes Stevenson will be back next week.